This is a becoming creature. This is your host, Nick, and this is going to be an atypical episode. I'm not here to interview anyone. I am here to tell you a little bit about myself on the eve of Vibe Camp 2, which for me will be the first time I am meeting the vast majority of you, um, because I never went to the initial Vibe Camp. So... I'm here to answer the question, uh, who is Becoming Creature? Who is the host that created this podcast that now has 29 episodes? So let's begin. Uh, I grew up in the Long Island suburbs, and um, it was a time before cell phones. and, And as I came of age, the internet started up and there was AOL and everything, but what I would really define as my childhood was was mostly spent outside, you know, visiting friends uh, when it would be very hot out. We might be in their basement where it was cooler. Um, and later on, I'd be playing Nintendo, playing my Game Boy, um, playing Halo with friends in their basements. Uh, but one of the most important and central things about growing up on Long Island is that it's especially unique as a piece of land, right? You have Manhattan to the west. It was like almost a wall of the world because like Manhattan was almost as extreme as a place as you could go to. So even if you did travel to Pennsylvania or um, Florida or something, it really wasn't quite as big, as going to Manhattan. So it, it was like the place, like the wall of the world was there in Manhattan to the far west. And we're on this long island where we have uh, the sandy beach of the south shore. And I remember it always smelled like people smoking cigarettes and um, the saltiness of the ocean made you so buoyant. And so we often went to the beach where me and my friends would try to big uh, dig the biggest holes that we could. And the north side of the island was these kind of hilly, smaller towns, a lot of Italians and, and Jews. And um, to the east were, were vineyards. And we also had uh, Montauk, which was way out east. And you can look this up, but it's like four hours to go from Manhattan to Montauk. So when I say it's a Long Island, it's, it is a very long island and i grew up pretty much in the dead center of the island so all of this was was um about as equidistant as it could get and i grew up one of the defining things of um kind of how how i developed uh from my childhood into an adult was the how integrated we were with our uh, born again evangelical church, and I th- I thought very deeply about it. I recognized early on that a lot of my peers they ch- kind of they accepted it, um, but they they didn't really think it was even really that important to pour your thoughts into. But as a child, I was always so curious. Like here we are learning about how the world works, how God works, and this you know the, the history. Um, 
that is like the most important history, which was the history that God created, right? And so I, I thought so deeply, and I would ask the pastors all these questions, and for some reason as a child I couldn't sleep at night, and I would, I would stay up at night and, and be thinking about, you know, the most important questions I could find. Um, but we lived in a house that was within walking distance of the church, and we moved into that house because it was within walking distance of this born-again Christian church, which was also my school growing up. It was kindergarten through 12th grade, and I think there were around 160 160 students at any given time. So the school is fairly small, so the classes were about, you know, 20 to 22 people. Some of them were larger, some of them were smaller. It varied over time. Um, But none of the teachers were certified teachers um, because pay wasn't that great. And uh, they they were essentially either teachers that couldn't get work at a quote-unquote real school or um, just somebody that needed a job, I think, a lot of the time. So the education itself was not that good, but I think that the parents thought that, you know, if you put your children, when they're, when they're so kind of naive, into the real world of public school, then they, there was a good chance they would be misled. Um, so you had a, a group of parents initially that deeply believed in the church, and in uh, how, how all of this was, was going to be working. Um, and the church was very active. So at night, you know, you would have choir rehearsal. You, you might have a late service in the middle of the week. And uh, on Sunday, you would have two services, and each would be three hours long. Um, plus, you know, speaking to people and, and being in the community. And when I was at my school, which again was at this church, um, it was in the basement of this church, so no windows or, or anything. Um, and we would start the day pretty much every day with, uh, like, it was called devotions. We would be learning a bit about, you know, the Bible, etc. And then, like, at the end of the day on um, Fridays, we would have devotions, which was kind of like a little, or not, I'm sorry, not devotions. It was chapel. So it was like a little church service um, and the, if you've never encountered born-again Christianity experientially, the way I would describe it is uh, they, they speak in tongues. Um, they believe in, like, you know, laying on of hands. And then often somebody that had their hands laid on them, they would, like, pass out, like, get laid out on the floor. And this would be called being slain. And they uh, believed in revival. So revival is, like... They didn't really even explain it that well, but kind of God was coming down and his his Holy Spirit was um, kind of suffusing the church with his power and people would be like overpowered by this. And so for one period of time, my school completely stopped all education for three days and we were in the gym just praying and speaking on God just for the entire school day. Uh and this was was called revival, and it began when a few of the students kind of uh, just started crying and speaking in tongues and, and running around the whole school, and then it, you know more and more people started crying and speaking in tongues, and it happened somewhat uh, 
naturally or organically. And so I, I grew up in this church, and their main beliefs were like, you know, if you want to go to heaven, you need to believe in God and be saved by the blood, and um, you're forgiven for your sins if, if you don't do anything wrong, but also that it's easy to be misled by the devil or misled by yourself. So it's important to stay very close to the church. They believed in 10% tithing and, and all of these things. Um, so that, that was the bubble I grew up in. Like, when I turned 16 a little bit after i turned 16 i had some personal revelations uh, which i would probably bore you so i won't get into them too much but I, I became an atheist when i was 16 and that was so radical for me because i was the only atheist i knew and matter of fact when i told my friends that i didn't believe in god anymore at first they didn't believe me and then after that they kind of just gave up they were like oh okay like actually after i actually persuaded them that I wasn't a Christian anymore. They were like, okay, well, you know, you made up your mind, all right. And I was shocked because I thought my friends would try to save my soul, you know, try to persuade me <laughs> that, that I was wrong. But they were pretty much just completely accepting of it, um, which shocked me. So I am in this Christian school, and um, most of the students from year to year were the same. And one of the seminal things about me is that I, from pretty much, is probably from kindergarten, um, there was a girl in the class, and of course I'm not going to say her name, but I was, even even before I knew anything about romance or whatever, there was something about her that I was fond of. And then as I got older, and I, I remember specific situations in like second grade where um, one of the classmates broke her ruler and she started crying and I got so angry that like I wanted to do something and I felt this inner conflict that like I wanted you know to make her feel better or, or to fix this as a second grader I was probably eight years old you know possibly even seven years old and then um pretty much beyond that point I was just I like I had such a heart for her and it was I have to say that it was so uncomfortable because she was this beautiful girl, but we were in like every class together for years. And I knew that if I, you know, didn't try to control my feelings, then I was just going to make life miserable for her and I would also like make life more miserable for me but I was just baseline miserable because I'm you know in love with this girl in third grade fourth grade fifth grade sixth grade and I am told by my parents that I cannot be in a relationship and I believe in God right and God says to respect your parents and God says to um, follow their orders and so in my mind I kind of didn't even have a choice like I thought that the will of God was what was most important and that if I acted outside of what he said to do then I was actually just bringing myself off the righteous path which would lead to less gifts less rewards um, you know on earth and in heaven that basically my life would just be worse if I didn't do what the Bible said and so no matter how strong my feelings were. And um, in my memory, actually, after we got AOL or whatever, AOL, 
um, we called it AIM, AOL Instant Messenger. I would, I would speak to her. And at one point, she actually asked me out after years of me being crazy about her. And I turned her down because, because I believed that like I had spoken to my parents about it. And they told me that I couldn't be in a relationship even though I really wanted to be. And because they said that, I just thought that I couldn't. Like, I really, I really couldn't. And it was, there's, there's no way that it wasn't formative for me because I thought about her, like, all the time. Like, when summer was about to come around and I knew I wasn't going to see her for months, I was, just had this gravity in my heart and I would just look at her with this just terrible, bittersweet attempt to imprint her on my memory because there was there was just something about her I felt terrible like I felt so bad for how much I felt for this girl and because I I knew it wasn't necessarily welcome and there was just it, it was imbued with this frosty loneliness that explored my chest whenever I thought about her and it, it was it my whole childhood was just like imbued in this this depression and this this melancholy um and even though you know I could have fun with friends and generally I, I was probably a happy child this aspect of it was so painful that as as I you know went later into my teens I started thinking more and more and more about how could I like fix this I would pray to God like please help me because I feel like I love this girl more than I love you God and I need you to help me through this because I don't want that I don't want this pain I don't want this loneliness I just want to serve you right and I would pray and pray and pray and then you know it all resulted in my you know eventually leaving leaving the church and it wasn't only for that reason but also for a lot of logical reasons and studying the bible and learning a bit more about science and um you know psychology and just kind of my own personal philosophy led to a recognition that people are not saved by god and that there is no like predestination people are saved by their faith it's kind of like if you have a vision or or try to manifest something it's not that you know, some, some special God is doing this for you, but it's just kind of like the power of the universe or, or the way that the human mind works, that if you are envisioning something, it's more likely to come true. And this is kind of how I started to see people's faith and, and the things that they've been through and, you know, their, um, all their personal miracles, uh, through this lens. Um, but so I, I went, uh, pretty much all the, years up until uh, I was 16. After I was 16, I went to public school and um, all of that came to an end, you know, within a couple months. But, um, but basically just being in this hyper-religious environment paired with this conflict in my heart of, you know, this, this longing for this, this person that I admired and how that I felt like that was intention with my love for God. That was all uh, very formative of me as a person. And I think that part of what that led to 
was my being very, very curious about people, like very curious about how they worked. I, I think because I spent so much of my childhood thinking about how she may have been feeling. Um, that kind of transferred after after I stopped thinking about her so much. That transferred into me just being curious about other people and, and being very hyper aware that they did have another experience. I think it's sometimes you can get distracted and you can forget that other people you know, have this vivid experience. And if you've ever been on a bus or a subway um, or, or on a plane with a lot of people and you, you can get this, you can get this experience of sonder where you're, you're suddenly aware of the fact that everybody else is aware and that they are experiencing reality with a vividness and a consciousness and, and an amount of thoughts that is uh, also vivid and important and everybody has their own battles and their own lives and their own things going on you know how how often we forget all of that important stuff because we're we're distracted by our own thoughts um so i i became i think over time a little bit more aware of this but i was also uh as especially as i would say a teenager i was a terrible listener um I was always thinking about what I wanted to say next. And, you know, as a teenager, I was kind of funny and I was smarter than more, most of my peers. And I think that I developed the opinion that what I had to say was more important. And, you know, it's it's probably in some way right because people at that age talk about such stupid, stupid things. But, of course, like this is extremely narcissistic, obviously. But I would also just get so bored when other people were like talking about nonsense that I was always trying to jump in to make things a little bit more interesting. And I'm, I'm still a little bit like that at parties and stuff like that. Um, you know, I can, I can be a little bit center stage, but as I, you know, went from my late teens to my, my early twenties, I recognized how, uh, the, the ways in which this is good and the ways in which this is bad, because like, for instance, if you're at a party and it is boring, then you do kind of want somebody to liven it up sometimes. Um, or maybe you're having a conversation about something that's just not stimulating for anybody involved and to have somebody that can turn the topic around into something that's more exciting. Like that's definitely a virtue, I think. But of course, if somebody's sharing with you something from their experience, from their emotions, and your first reaction is to turn it on back onto yourself or onto your thoughts, that is a very dangerous and toxic habit that makes people feel unheard. Um, and so I had a long personal project of trying to get a little bit better at this um, and learn a little bit more both about how other people experience their lives and also learn a little bit about how I can just become a better listener. And that's one of the reasons that I created this podcast, I created this podcast in part to see if I could like to see if I could sit here and listen to somebody and really engage with them. If, if not in a conversational way, because if you listen to this podcast, you recognize that most of my questions aren't conversational, but there's this second level where as I'm listening to somebody, I need to know where to take the conversation I need to know whether to pull on any of the strings of what they're saying. And I need to know what my audience might want to want to hear. 
And so you have to hold all of these things in your mind at the same time as you look at your notes, which have, you know, a hundred, like a list of a hundred things that you may want to discuss. And that's very challenging. And it, and it showed me how energy intensive it is to really pay attention to somebody's what somebody's saying. You know, it's it's not so hard to merely be present with a person. That's pretty, um, I would say it's rare for somebody to do that, but it's not inherently that hard. But if you want to have a quality conversation or you want to elevate the content of the conversation, you need to be really, really engaged, but also be juggling all of these other things at the same time. So after high school, I started going to college in New York and, um, College was great. I don't really have a lot of complaints about college. I, I studied economics and um, had a, a bunch of great experiences, but I don't think I have any stories that um, that you might be interested in regarding that. Um, but I can tell you that after college, um, I, I had started running a lot. I lost a lot of weight. I, I went down from like 220 to like 185. And I needed to buy more clothes. I had these, you know, baggy jeans and I would wear, you know, these button-ups that were kind of cheap from like, you know, JC Penney's or something. And I would wear graphic t-shirts. And I, I, I knew that I was an adult now and I needed to look a little bit better. And so I started um, going online and kind of just posting some pictures of myself and asking for advice. And I would just get totally torn apart. Um, so <laughs> I recognized I, I needed to learn a little bit more. And so I started reading uh, just in depth uh, at a hobby level. I started reading um, Style Forum and Hype Beast, And uh, I, I stumbled upon a small, a tiny little subreddit um, called Male Fashion Advice. Uh, when I started reading it, I think I, it had like 4,000 people. And um, I found that community to be very... Uh, welcoming because the thing about style forum is you had all these rich guys these rich guys wearing two hundred thousand dollars worth of clothes and hype beast you had all these city kids you know with this crazy streetwear which i admired but it definitely like i didn't have a place there and then on male fashion advice it was literally just a bunch of guys that you know around college age or, or young professional that were just genuinely trying to learn how to wear clothes so um, the moderators at that point were not very active uh, at all so my buddy uh, stepped up to moderate and I stepped up to moderate as well so he and I uh, started creating like these these weekly threads and these guides um, my guide was the first guide ever on male fashion advice. And um, I, I even created like this silly pocket square guide. Um, and then now if you go, you'll see there are like hundreds and hundreds of, of you know, basic outfits that have gone through generations and um, all of these these wild things. But back when it had five or six thousand people, we were, it was the small enough community of, you know, an active four or five hundred people where um, you could disagree with somebody about, you know, how long a shirt should be or, or, or something like that, or you could share inspiration. And 
your content would get elevated pretty quickly um, on the feed just because not that many people were viewing it and they, you didn't have that much competition. And as a moderator, I didn't have that much work, whereas now I think they have like 20 moderators or something like that. Um, so in that community, you know, there were a good, you know, 12 guys. There was me and my buddy that moderated it. Um, I later ended up being his best man at his wedding. And uh, there, there was another about 12 guys that um, that were, were very active and, and would give advice or, or post fits or just joke around. And it became our little community. Um, so, like, for me, this was, you know, my online, my, my real online community ever before I encountered Twitter or anything like that. Um, and I actually still meet up with these guys. So we've been talking for, I think about eight years and I still, you know, I'll I'll still fly out to California and hang out with these guys. One of them, actually, I didn't have any money. Um, and he was having a bachelor party in Hawaii and he paid for my whole trip, the food, everything for a week to fly me out there so that I could spend time with my fashion friends. Um, so those, those are some really, really great guys and I love them dearly. And I hope we stay friends forever. So I was learning about um, some fashion stuff. But after college, I I had a hard time getting a job. I ended up, um, this was like, I was applying for jobs around 2009. And uh, the economy was not wonderful back then. I think I applied for something like 200 government, like junior economist jobs. And they all got back to me saying that they weren't filling the positions that they had just posted the positions because it was kind of their job to do so, but that they weren't filling any of them. And I, I had applied at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, all these places I got, I got turned down after a whole summer of, I don't know if you've ever applied for government, but you have to write like these essay length question, like answers to these questions. And it, it was just so much work. And I was very disappointed that it, it came to just absolutely zero. So I ended up getting a job. Um, at this this tech company, uh, not like as as a coder, but we would just run what like cable at new buildings, um, you know, and and we would do any work we could find. Like this this was really kind of a backwater type of company, you know. I'd be installing antivirus stuff like that, you know. We we would be um, doing very basic social media type stuff. Um, but that didn't really last. It turned out that I was a little bit too expensive for that employer, and he ended up finding a reason to let me go. And after that, uh, a friend of mine that I knew growing up in the church uh, had told his dad, who worked in wealth management, that I was a pretty smart guy and that he should consider uh, hiring me because I had studied economics and um, that he you know, uh, just thought I would be a great fit. And I remember the day of the interview, I woke up like an hour early, um, you know, dressed up in a suit. I had my suitcase. I had a list of the questions that I expected that he was going to ask me. And I went to go to the uh, the train because, uh, it, it, you know, going all the way into Manhattan, it's a lot easier to go to the train. And I found out via the news that a van had crashed into the tracks and destroyed the electric network for the uh, the northern train I was going on. So I had to go 30 minutes out of my way to get a, a different train. Um, and it was very difficult to find parking. And so I'm like running around. At this point, I'm already sweating. And I get on the train. And uh, we're 
going into Manhattan and I'm in this suit and there's a guy next to me wearing shorts and he's got a backpack and the backpack seemed full actually. And, uh, he's wearing a hat and he was just like kind of shaking and sweating. And I, I, my first thought was that maybe he was on drugs or something, but it didn't seem like he was on drugs. It, it was very, very strange. And he turns to me and he just goes, Hey man, I'm so sorry about this. And then he opens up his backpack and he just starts puking into it. And not like a little, but just like he must have had a lot of content in himself. And he was just puking and puking and puking. And, you know, at at some point he's dry heaving and the conductor was called over. The conductor radios the, uh, the engineer that was driving the train and he tells him to stop. And they end up calling 911 and they get an ambulance and and the police to get this guy off the train. And at this point I'm like losing my mind. So, so everything that could possibly go wrong is going wrong. And I I'm in my mind, I'm like, how can this be, how can this be happening in this way to me where it's like, there's this guy literally next to me going through some kind of, of course, as an aside, I recognize it's super narcissistic for me to be thinking about, me, in this case, of somebody else being in a uh, very bad shape. But day of my interview, I was thinking about me. So I'm just like, how could this be happening to me? Um, but I, I hope that guy's okay. Just a little footnote. Uh, I have no idea. So uh, so the train starts back up. And so I'm, I am gone, I've gone from having like plenty of time to now... I have no extra time. So like I'm going to be late if I don't hustle. So I was going to, I was planning on taking the train on up to the Upper East Side. And I was just like, you know what? I don't have time. I get a taxi and the taxi drives me up and the traffic was so bad that I ended up just getting out of the tra- taxi and, and like jogging. And I got there right on time, but I'm sweating wearing this suit. It's the middle of the summer. I'm hot. So I knock on the door, I come in, I meet, uh, you know, a couple of the employees, I sit down and the guy tells me, um, that the, the, uh, the owner, the boss that I, my interview was going to be with, he's running a little bit late and I ended up sitting there for almost two hours before he came downstairs. And I, I later learned that this is very common for him. Um, but we go into an interview and, uh, prior to that, the manager of, of the, uh, of the office had given me something to fill out. And so he started asking me all these questions and I'm like, oh, it's so funny. You're asking me these questions. I actually referenced this directly on the material that I filled out for, for this, which he had not read at all. Um, so he offered me the job and I took it and, um, and I, I started working in Manhattan. And initially, I didn't have my Series 7, so I was traveling three hours into uh, Manhattan from like Port Jeff um, into the Upper East Side, and I would have three hours back. So I was working about 10 hours, and then six hours was travel. And um, during that time, during my train time, I would be studying for the Series 7. I would be studying for my life, health, and uh, variable licenses, uh, insurance licenses. 
So in like 60 days, I ended up passing the Series 7 and getting all my insurance things because I, I needed to be able to trade stocks and I needed to be able to um, help out the clients in doing everything they needed to do uh, at, um, at this company. It was a, a wealth management company. I ended up working there for a few years, um, but I was living in Washington Heights eventually. I, I spent a month doing the six-hour commute, and then I moved into Washington Heights as soon as I could. And uh, I, I was up there for a few months, um, but I was living with two other people, and uh, it, it just wasn't um, exactly what I wanted, but it was what I could kind of afford. Um, but my boss ended up buying the second level uh, above the office of the building, um, which was a large apartment. And I offered him, I was, I asked him if, if he was going to have anybody move in immediately. And he said, no. So I was like, well, why don't you just rent it to me until you need to renovate it or something. And uh, that way you're making a little bit of money for me. And, um, you know, I, I get the advantage of having a very short commute and I have this beautiful apartment. Um, and then I can move out whenever you need me to. And he agreed to that. So I was paying, I think I was paying $1,200 a month for a thousand square feet on the Upper East Side, um, which later after I moved out, I think it was going for something like $8,000 a month. But it had two fireplaces, uh, two chandeliers. Um, the ceilings were, I think they were 12 foot ceilings. And it, it was just a very large apartment, um, you know, two bathrooms. I had a small, you know, 70 square foot guest room, um, multiple closets. Uh, so it, it was it was a big apartment and it, it was nice to stay there. Um, but I also I didn't have a lot of money, first of all, living in New York City. And um, I, I just I actually wasn't making that much. I'm not going to share how much I was making, but it was let's just say that when uh, the following year compensation came up, the offer was double what I was making. So, so I, I'm like really pinching pennies at this point. Um, but also I'm trying to live in, you know, New York City at the same time. Um, so I'm just trying to balance all of those things. But knowing that I didn't have a lot of money, my, my boss would often, you know, come knocking on my door. He lived on, in the fifth floor. So it was the office, my apartment, two other people, and then my boss lived on the top floor. So uh, he would often come down and be like, hey, you know, get dressed, we're going to the bar, and we, we would go off to the bar, we would go to the rooftop of, you know, Gansevoort or, or something like that. Um, and we did this fairly often, and he would always pay uh, because he knew I didn't have a lot of money. And it was kind of nice, you know, I like that. Um, however, this guy, he, he was a complicated fellow. So eventually, my friend that got me this job ended up moving, moving in with me, and he stayed in the tiny guest room uh, while I had this, you know, this this large bedroom or whatever. Um, but I was already saving so much money that I really didn't mind, and um, it, it was just a little bit of an agreement. And he was polite enough to ask me if it was if it was all right. So now I'm living with my boss's son. However, their relationship was tense. Um, they, they just, I, I'm not going to divulge his, uh, their, the beginning of, of his life or anything, but they, let's just, you know, suffice it to say that they had a, a, a tense relationship. 
so at one point uh, I'm in the office and so I hear a huge bang from my appointment above me and kind of uh, like heavy footsteps and I look to my manager and my manager just said keep your nose out of it knowing that I'm thinking like what the hell is going on I need to do something about this and I, I think I waited maybe four or five seconds and I was like, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't. And I ran upstairs, went to my apartment, and I see my boss in the middle of the workday wrestling with my friend, his son. And I just told him, and I was like, look, I don't know what's going on between the two of you. And you're my manager, and you're my landlord, but I cannot have this going on in my apartment. If you want to take it outside do that but please leave my apartment and he just straightened up straightened his shirt he's they're both breathing breathing hard and my my friend has got like these glassy eyes and he just said watch yourself and and he left and i just closed the door and asked my friend if he was okay and he he, he was embarrassed you know and uh and i i just went back to work but i was just like oh jesus christ like this is crazy you know so things were a little bit more tense after that uh, reasonably and um and you would probably think you know hey man get the hell out of there what are you what are you doing in my mind i was like i'm still trying to prove myself i want to live in new york city you know i want to do a good job i want to make a reasonable income um, and outside of this one job, I've got no serious experience. I have like a little bit of tech experience. So they're giving me a shot, even though I don't, I don't really have the resume to back it up. And, um, you know, I'm just going to kind of bowl my way through this, prove myself and, you know, do whatever I can. But it, it was definitely a toxic situation. So months later, it's around Thanksgiving and um, I had... Uh, a party is called Friendsgiving, where you and a bunch of your friends throw a party together and it kind of have like Thanksgiving together um, the week before Thanksgiving. And so I ran out uh, to go to Starbucks for something. And I uh, I realized I had left my keys in the apartment. So I text my, my roommate, my, my buddy, uh, hey man, I left my keys, are you around? You know, can you can you open the apartment for me? He said uh, that he, he was busy at the moment, but maybe later. And so I contacted my landlord and he said he doesn't have the keys. It's the like the maintenance guy who had already gone home for the night. So I'm like, oh, God, I've got this party to go to. I've got to figure this out. <clears throat> so I texted my buddy again and there was no response. So I waited 45 minutes. Still no response. So I'm like, OK, I don't have my wallet. I don't have my keys. I need to go to this party. I'm not even dressed for the party. I'm still in my kind of messed up, uh, you know, suit that I've been wearing all day. And I just was so persuaded I could figure it out. Now, here's the thing is that I didn't have my keys for my apartment, but I did have my keys for the office, which was below my apartment. And in the back of the office was this little patio. And above that patio was my back door. And so I opened up the office and I, they, we would have these gratings in New York City over the windows. 
and I climbed up the gratings and everything is creaking like crazy. Like I, I feel like I'm going to rip this stuff off the wall. And I ended up jumping off of the grating of the window onto the, uh, the, the top of the door. Um, you know, you have the door frame and I climb over the, uh, the guardrail onto my patio. And so on my patio, we never lock this door because my buddy was always out there smoking weed. He would be smoking cigarettes. And so we, we just never locked the door because we were always in and out. And I go to open the door and it's locked. And at this point, I'm like, I'm going to figure out how to open this door or I'm just going to break it because I don't really have any other like solution to this. So I'm I'm trying to figure out how to unlock this door. It was one of those pinhole doors where you had to stick something uh, in, into the knob in order to get it to unlock. And I'm looking around. I'm trying to use my I try to use the pin of my belt, and I'm trying to pull the nails out of the door hinge because I'm thinking I could use that, and I just couldn't think of anything. So it's November, late November in Manhattan. And it's cold. I think it was it, it was probably like 35, 36 degrees. I wouldn't say it was 40, though. And it's cold. And I'm not even wearing my jacket because I took it off when I'm doing all these acrobatics in order to climb into my apartment. And I was brave enough to get onto my patio, but I realized I was not brave enough to climb back down. So I'm taking an inventory of everything on my person, you know, my socks, my shoelaces, my everything I have, everything that's around me. I'm, I'm studying everything, and I realized that I had my keys, and on my keys was a keychain, um, or, or rather a key ring. And I realized that I could straighten out this key ring and use it as a pin for the door, which is what I did. So I... Uh, I put it like under my foot and I kind of twisted it to, to hammer it out in order to get it straight. And I was able to pick the door. And so I, I got in and I, um, got changed. I ran over to my sisters who was hosting the party and my sister was friends with my, my buddy's sister. So my buddy's sister was there with my sister and I was like, Hey, did you hear from him? And she said, no, because he was actually supposed to attend. And I was like, I haven't heard from him for like two hours at this point. And so we're all very confused. And he ends up texting back, oh, hey, you know, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Later, I find he actually that night took a plane to Texas to be with a girl. And he just never told any of us. He just dipped. And I didn't even figure this out until a couple of days later, I went to his room um, and just realized that all of his stuff was gone. So, uh, so he disappeared and after that point, things between my, my boss and I got a little bit chilly and, um, the way the compensation was supposed to work when I first started working there, um, was one way. And then the year end came around. And what uh, what I was expecting didn't happen. So out of kind of self-respect, but also not really wanting to cause a fuss, uh, around a little bit after January, I, I planned to leave. Um, and around this time, 
after I, I left the, the company, I started working with my father. And this was just around the time that um, my, my mom just soon divorced him after that point, And he kind of stopped working. So I'm working with him, but there's not really any work to do. So I end up kind of floundering around and uh, trying to get other gigs. And, you know, I, I applied to a variety of companies. And I was always like the number two, but somebody else got picked. Something about me is that, um, and I, I don't know if it was because after school I had such a hard time getting a job, but I, I have this like learned helplessness regarding applying for jobs where I just don't feel good applying for jobs. And I, I always just feel like, um, like it's not going to work out um, just because oh, so many times it would be me and one other person and I wouldn't get it. Um, or I would just, you know, hear negative things back and, I ended up just getting really depressed, um, and so I, I basically just stopped working, and I didn't even have a car, um, and I, I took like a some some number of months off. I don't even know; it was probably like nine months, um, where I was just burning through my bank account and jogging on the beach. Um, and after that, I just looked at my bank account, and it was almost zero, and I decided I needed a job. So uh, I found uh, a restaurant within walking distance of me. It was about a mile. And I started working. Um, I, it must have been something like September. Um, but it, it was starting to get cold. And I, I would, you know, uh, it was like a takeout place. It was me and one other guy, um, you know, handling a grill. Or rather, like a griddle, La Blancha. And um, I would be making $10 an hour off the books doing the dishes and I would walk home, you know, with wet pants late at night when it was really cold out. Um, so it was very humbling to go from, you know, an $8,000 a month apartment, right. In New York city to walking home with wet jeans. Uh, it, it was, you know, you, you definitely, <laughs> look yourself in the mirror a little bit differently, you know, and you, you have to contend with who you think you are. So, uh, one of my mom's buddies was able to find me a car for $400. So I saved up enough money to buy it and he gave it to me. And, uh, this car was, it had a good engine, but you know, that winter, the doors wouldn't close all the way. So when I'm driving to work, I would, I would have to literally be holding the door closed um, and so once I had this car, fortunately I could, I could, uh, start working at a better place. So I ended up applying for Costco and I got the job. And so I'm, I'm hustling. I've got this, you know, crappy car and, um, I ended up getting a new car soon after that, but I'm still working there. So, uh, so one way or another that worked out. So a few, Years after I started working at Costco, I uh, visited my family living in Georgia and realized it was a lot cheaper. And, you know, um, Costco pays well enough, but uh, it's still hard to make ends meet in New York. So I ended up moving down to Georgia in order to, uh, you know, just live a slightly better quality of life. So I'm during this time, I guess, after my... Um, after I had left finance, uh, I started a meditation practice and I 
had gotten deep enough into it where I had some type of um, insight or epiphany while I was in Georgia that allowed me to be very deeply present for an extended amount of time. Um, and it was it was around this time that I met a girl on Twitter named Bree. And um, I briefly mentioned her in a, in a past podcast episode. Um, I can't remember if it was the Goblin Ons episode or the Egg Prophet episode, but you might want to... It might have been both of those, actually. I think it's both. So I would listen to both of those if you want some more details about this. Um, but essentially, she and I would speak for hours on the phone every day. We got along really well. She was such a positive and funny person, uh, not very egotistical, um, just to, just a wonderfully um, bright person with she had a great smile and um we we had been talking for months and we finally agreed to meet and so we like carved out a week to uh that i i requested off of work and you know pay for the apartment or not the apartment the the airbnb and we were going to go to the outer banks and just spend a week and this was going to be like the beginning of our relationship um and so i have like this deep presence going on this whole time and a few days before the trip, she was driving to get her hair done for our trip. And uh, she, it was raining and, and she, uh, the car went off the road and ended up flipping. And she ended up um, physically all right. The car was completely totaled. Um, but after that, she and I uh, didn't talk anymore. She, she was um, traumatized by that and... I don't know uh, what what she's like now. I, I hope she's fine, and I, I hope she's living her best life and everything. But um, but it was it was terrible for her, and she just at that point stopped being emotionally available and decided that she didn't want to speak to me anymore. Um, and that was just um, the way I describe it is that like I went from this period of of wonderful deep presence to um, just like my kind of my ego coming flooding back and just being full of, of fear that I think that in my presence I was entirely unguarded. And so when this happened, um, just all of this, all of these coping mechanisms came back times 10. Um, and I was just so overwhelmed I could barely work. And, you know, it, it, even in retrospect, like, it, the my response to it was a little bit extreme like I was so extremely distraught by this but I think it it had a little bit to do with um, just the combination of, of my being so hopeful and someone I cared about being you know like was her health was in question and um, just to see her go from like this bubbly wonderful person to um, it, I, I don't want to say she was robotic, but she she just wasn't like emotionally available. Like a, a part of her brain had just changed, um, and it was it was just so absolutely sad to me, um, and it, that really screwed me up at the time. Uh, it, it was it was very challenging, and so I did my best to you know return to my meditation practice uh, and move on. Um, but, but it was hard. So I'm at this point, I'm still on Twitter and, um, I ended up 
speaking with uh, another girl, um, Ashley, and I, f- felt, I felt like we could really be something and that like this was finally the relationship that I deserved. Um, you know, just in my life, having gone through all, so much heartbreak around relationships and things like this. Um, and I started speaking to her. I flew out to Dallas a bunch um, in order to spend time with her. And she eventually decided to move in uh, with me in Georgia. So she's working remotely. And we lived together uh, for about a year and a half. And I don't, I don't want to go through everything that happened. Um, but she ended up moving out. And I'm mentioning this in part because I think it's, it's relevant to the podcast. Because before she moved in with me, I was doing a lot of podcast episodes. Um, and then after she moved in with me, um, I started taking on a lot more work. You know, I stepped up from regular employee to supervisor to manager. So I'm taking on a lot more work. And I'm also trying to spend quality time with her and, you know, build a life, essentially. So I, I really, you know, took my my foot off the gas when it came to the podcast. And um, something I actually never told her is that for our first Christmas, she actually bought me a plaque that said, like, Becoming a Creature Podcast, and it had the logo and everything on it. And um, I had a hard time reacting to this um, you know, I, I tried to seem happy, but I, I actually found it extremely heartbreaking because I felt like I, I had really kind of um, sacrificed being a podcaster and creating this um, show in order to, you know, spend more time with her and, and, and try to build a better life. And um, so I, I kind of saw uh, the podcast as, as kind of like collateral damage in our relationship. And so to kind of receive that as a gift uh, for Christmas was was just it, it kind of just reminded me that I had given up this part of myself um, in order to be with her, which was my choice. Um, but it, it was it was sad because I, I do love making this. Um, but ever since she left, I have just felt like I've struggled a lot um, getting back to being present and getting all my habits right and getting in the kind of mindset that I need to be in in order to be a good a good listener and a good um, podcast host so that has led to my doing fewer episodes Um, and that's kind of where I am right now that I'm trying to get my life a little bit more stabilized I moved into a new apartment I'm like 95% of the way there in my apartment and you know things are going fine at work which is always busy Um, but my schedule is kind of all over the place and I want to continue doing this show. Um, I'm, I'm not putting up this episode as, you know, goodbye or anything like that. Um, but we have vibe camp tomorrow. This is, is vibe camp Eve. And, um, you know, I'm going to be meeting you all for the first time. And I wanted you to know a little bit about me and a little bit about where I am at. So... I look forward to seeing you soon. This has been a Becoming Creature. You can listen to more episodes on becomingcreature.substack.com or you can uh, find the podcast in all of your favorite podcast catchers. Uh, if 
feel free to reach out to me at abecomingcreature at gmail.com. I hope to do another one of these soon. I love you all.